This episode of the Sport Lifestyle Podcast is presented by Empirica. That's Empirica, E-M-P-I-R-I-K-A. Empirica exists to amplify your brand's growth. A digital partner to the ambitious, the creative engine launching brands and igniting growth. The unagency where relationships matter, not transactions. Let's connect at EmpiricaMedia.com. That's EmpiricaMedia.com. Let's get the show started. This is the Sport Lifestyle Podcast, where the trade of sport collides with fashion and innovation. Your hosts, Mike Gugat, Neil Schwartz, and John Peters, break down news, discuss trends, and interview industry influencers. The Sport Lifestyle Podcast is on now. Welcome back to the Sport Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, John Peters. On this episode, we speak to Kate Delhagen, founder of Oregon Sports Angels, an angel network based out of Portland, Oregon, with an investment focus around anything an athlete, fan, or team can use or wear. Having held senior digital roles at both Nike and Forrester, Kate spoke about how she helps founders think about creating a strategy for a digital world. Kate also spoke about how her angel network loves to roll up their sleeves, help entrepreneurs, and provide strategic value as hands-on investors. She also shared a few examples of investments made to date and other macro trends like CBD and sports. If you are a founder with a pre-revenue or early stage company, be sure to visit OregonSportsAngels.org to learn more. There's so much to unpack from this masterclass-like interview from an expert like Kate, so let's just get to it. Our guest today is Kate Delhagen from uh, Oregon Sports Angels. She's the founder of that out of uh, Portland. Kate, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we are all in, still in quarantine and stay-at-home times, but uh, I think a lot of these discussions we've been having have been really cathartic for a lot of executives, so appreciate you, you coming on. And, and Kate, I'd, I'd love to start with um, Oregon Sports Angels. I mean, that's what you're doing now. You're the founder there. Uh, you have incredible experiences and background, which we'll get to, but for our listeners, could you tell us about uh, Oregon Sports Angels? Absolutely, sure thing. Uh, I am sitting here in Oregon, in, in Portland, and uh, uh, in 2017, uh, a number of events caused me to leave a very fun, cool job at Nike, um, mainly because I wanted to go back to working with the startups. As I'm sure you'll ask me later, some of my prior jobs were either starting things or working closely with small companies and startups. I kind of have a, um, a history of, I'm a repeat offender, I guess, in terms of having that um, DNA. But I had a chance to start uh, an investment group here because the University of Oregon, as some, some of the listeners may know, the University of Oregon launched a master's program uh, called Master's in Sports Product Management in 2016. And over the course of those 18 years, the students build products. Uh, instead of a thesis, they actually build a product. And when the uh, person developing the program was creating a curriculum and she and I were chatting about it, I said, hey, what if someone wants to start a company? You know, it's conceivable. They'll create a cool sneaker or a cool jacket and they'll want to build a line and a brand and start a company. And she said, knowing my background, she said, they probably will. Why don't you figure out how to help? And for those who know Ellen Devlin, the founder of that program, she's, you don't even know the hook is set in your mouth and all of a sudden you're landed in the boat. Um, so I was hook, line and sinker on board to say, I'll help. And sure enough, the first class graduated in March of 2017. And one of the student teams had decided to form a backpack company. And I 
said that I would help. They'd heard that I would help. They looked at me and said, you're going to help us, right? And I said, okay, I got to figure this out. So literally, I, I went up to Nike, resigned my position. And within a few weeks, we tin cupped a little bit around, got them some money to get them out, launch a Kickstarter, and essentially launched their company. And that, for me, was the catalyst moment that just said, this is what I'm going to do. And, and then it became a little challenging to define this. And so for the listeners who know a little bit about how early stage investing works, there really are three models. One is, you know, ask your friends and family to make philanthropic contributions, donations, and gifts. The other two models are, are more in the professional investing mode. One is an angel network, individuals who gather and, and make their own decisions uh, as investors and venture capital um, funds of various stages. And I had some familiarity with that from my prior career experience. Um, and I joined two local uh, network, one a network and one a fund to gain my own personal experience. Up until that time, I had been a, um, an accidental, intentional but accidental angel investor. And I decided to join a, both a network and a fund to really understand how they worked. After a few months, it became pretty clear that what, what we would what we wanted to try to do was gather a, a bunch of really industry and, and entrepreneurial all-stars who would invest not just their financial capital, but their strategic and social capital. So I picked the network model, um, which is what we have established. It's a member-based model. We're about two and a half years old with 25 uh, and growing members who are very active in building the organization doing the work of screening deals, uh, evaluating, you know, hearing pitches, evaluating deals, doing due diligence and ultimately writing checks. And then what, as anyone in particular writes a check, they also often roll up their or our sleeves and get to work helping those founders. So it's been, um, as anyone who started anything can attest, it's been a lot of work. It's been incredibly rewarding to see industry vets who are kind of retired or pre-tired or, or just want to give back and help find and fund the next generation, raise their hands and say, yes, I love this. Even if I don't know how to be an angel, I want to do this. So sign me up. And then we teach them how to be angels. And then also for the founders, and this is probably the part that, that I'm most excited about where we have the most development opportunity ahead. The founders have told us there's no one else like us. And as a brand person, I love that positioning. It's not just to be the best, but to be the only and the best is our aspiration. And so for now, we think we are the only um, sports angel network. There are other sports venture funds for sure. And there are other investors with an eye on sports. But as far as we know, we're the only one like this. Um, and we're investing. We've got seven companies that angels have, have invested in. Um, some people one deal, some people five or six deals, and we've put about $1.5 million to work in just about two years. So as far as angels go, we're, we're doing our part. I personally think we're still really early on. Um, but yeah, that's what we're doing. Anyone can go to www.oregonsportsangels.org. We are a nonprofit, so uh, members do all the work. Um, but you can check us out on the website. You can learn about us if a founder is listening. We look for deals that um, basically took us a year to figure out that we're interested in anything an athlete, a team, or a fan can use or wear. So pretty much anything, and we define athlete broadly, indoor athlete, as we all are now, <laughs> outdoor athlete, maybe a team sports athlete, maybe an individual or, or an outdoor adventure athlete, but broadly define athlete, and then anything that might be in your gym bag, in your, um, in your workout closet, 
in your garage, in your extended universe. Um, and, and really that's kind of what we're doing. So I've, I've talked quite a bit there. <laughs> Maybe you want to unpack a few things, but uh, we're, we're pretty excited about what we've done so far. And we know that it's early and we have a lot of potential. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I, I would encourage everyone listening to go to the website uh, just to, for at least even just looking at the mentors and, and angels involved. I mean, it's a, it's pretty, it's quite the network and I can um, just double down. One of the things, you know, Kate, I'd love for you to expand on is you're very clearly uh, operator strategic mentality get to work, which is, is kind of, I think why we bonded over the years with our discussions about strategic value. I've, I've yet to meet an investor who said, there aren't, they are not strategic, but you guys really put, put your time, sweat and effort into it, which is often more, more valuable than a check. Oftentimes I would, I would argue. So I'd love, do you have an example of how, you know, you guys took on an investment and maybe a, a project you helped the, the founder with? Could you share one or two examples? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll pick two. One is, one is um, a really interesting Portland based company called Loopedworks. And Loopworks has been around. The founder is a guy who had done time at, um, at Adidas and some other industry brands. And, and he really, uh, 10 years ago, had the itch for sustainability when many others in the industry didn't, didn't even know it was a word. And so he's, a, he's an early um, sort of a pioneer in the space, quite a subject matter expert. And, and for five or six years, he had struggled to get consistent inventory to upcycle into bags and, and minor garments, you know, accessories. And then, um, he, I met him through the U of O SPM program that I mentioned earlier. He was one of the other industry members in that, uh, in that community. And, and we kind of connected over it. And so I started to kind of help him a little bit with his digital commerce efforts, just sort of as an advisor and as a, as a you know, clearly there's the future is digital. And he, he welcomed my help. And, and so I had been working with him a little bit prior to starting OSA. And then um, we, he, he got a big hit from some airlines who were trying to change out their leather seat covers and, uh, and ultimately repurpose them into bags and other things. And, and he wanted to pitch to OSA, but we were like, you're not really a sports product. <laughs> um, but fast forward a year later, he signed a deal with some of the NBA teams and the University of Oregon to upcycle their, their jerseys. So anyone who's in the license business knows that it can often be a nightmare of, of all of a sudden a player gets traded and you're stuck with a bunch of stuff that's never been worn. He was able to grab that inventory and turn it into, you know, fanny packs and pillows and fan gear. And so when he established a position with Loopworks as a, um, as a supplier to the sports industry through the license business, all of a sudden he's in our sector and, you know, he's kind of perennially had been raising money. So we brought him in to pitch. So he pitched to our group. And I think the combination of timing and the, the sort of surge of interest in sustainability in the athletic industry in particular, plus the, the very interesting opportunities for that business to develop um, in a couple of ways. Uh, upcycling is one component, downcycling is another, um, truly a circular economy and you know how do you design from the beginning to have a closed loop product and product creation process. All of those opportunities we knew from our time at, you know, at places like Nike or Adidas, there were coming. And so a number of us uh, in, invested in Loopworks, and now I think four or five of our members are actually on advisory board. It's, it's quite a large group because of the complexity of the work, but Loopworks is a great example. So we work uh, often, roll up our sleeves, help him with operations if needed. Right now, if you were to visit that website, you would see that we're making masks because that's what we're doing. 
and we're taking a lot of un, unused uh, pre-consumer product and turning it, including from some in the industry like Brooks, I think some materials from Brooks and Patagonia and others, turning it into face masks because right now there's an urgent pressing need and we have a network of sewers around the planet who can do this stuff for us. So that's an example where um, of a few things, one, a very persistent founder who was not gonna give up, he's been at this for 10 years, developed subject matter expertise, enters our industry, uh, very attractive to, to our membership, a bunch of us invested and now we're just, you know, to your point, John, rolling up our sleeves and sort of saying, how can we help? So beyond the capital that we've invested, we're really helping with, with connections with some of the network. The NBA deal, for example, we were able to help make an intro to Foot Locker, get some placement at some of the House of Hoops stores. So um, the, the, the relationship piece, not just the know-how of operations, but the relationship piece comes into play. So that's, that's one example. Um, and then the other one I'll share is, is a very interesting for a very different reason, which is I'm not sure if anyone listening today is, is how aware they are of the, the sort of trend around cannabis, but specifically around CBD in, in general, uh, but also in sports. And um, I think it was almost about a year ago, we met Rachel Rapino at a pitch fest and she has a sort of famous sister, Megan, who happened to be about to do the you know, run up to the World Cup. And so we met Rachel and a few of the co-founders at an event and they were very early on developing uh, a CBD play by athletes for athletes, which is now the company called Mendy. And so if your listeners have heard of Mendy, it's probably because they've, they've been following some of the women's sports leaders. Um, and if they haven't, Mendy is one of the, I'd say there are several, um, companies that have developed CBD products by athletes for athletes, but these guys are based in Portland. They have some strong, so again, some trend lines. One, it's a, it's a growing trend in terms of a market opportunity. Um, it's a very authentic product and product creation team. The group has some very deep subject matter expertise, just as I said with Scott and Loopworks. So too does Mindy with a woman named Kendra, who is a, a longtime cannabis farmer, grower, and knows the industry and all the politics and, and regulations associated with the industry. Um, and then they have a lot of really great sports connections and, and they've really developed the product with athletes. So it, again, it reminded a lot of us of maybe Nike's early days when, you know, Bowerman built shoes with athletes and, you know, on a daily basis and he put them on their feet and say, how do you like them? Help me make them better. The Mendy team took that approach to product development and they had been using a lot of those athletes to kind of learn the, how, what product would make sense. And, and they've brought that to market. And, uh, and several of us, uh, actually quite a few of the members of OSA invested in, um, and we're help, we've helped them with some brand positioning and some brand work. We're helping with some product development and, and packaging and operational stuff. Um, and importantly, we're helping with strategic, uh, their first time founders, and they could use some strategic guidance. So we're thrilled to work with those guys as well. Completely different type of project and energy, um, but two Portland-based companies were able to really apply our, our capital in all facets. So there you go. How's that? It's amazing. Uh, Kate, I mean, I think you talk about uh, the excitement that comes with that entrepreneurial spirit and having come from the corporate world where Oftentimes the entrepreneurial spirit is promoted up until, you know, it's the end of the quarter and, <laughs> you know, everything is, is due. How do you, how do you take those sort of best practices that come out of, of 
of the big corporate environment and at the same time sort of nurture and, and uh, you know, push that entrepreneurial spirit so it doesn't get tripped up by some of those other things? How do you no, kind of strike a balance between them? That's, that's a fabulous question. Um, I, I kind of think of it as two ways. One is maybe I'll, I'll wear a sports hat for a minute, do an analogy, which is even the best player, most let's call them professional players, the best athletes, whether they're football, basketball, baseball, they can almost all step down and coach a little league team or a bunch of kids in bunch ball. Um, the, the knowledge and the development of your skills, you know, the real, the real challenge is can you translate it to a younger, less mature audience, right? And essentially be a teacher and a coach. And so one of our, one of the things we look for in, in recruiting our members is a, are they coaches as a concept? Do they have a coaching, giving, teaching mindset? And then, you know, B, can they translate their very sophisticated, oftentimes very sophisticated, deep knowledge of a subject, whether it's distribution and sales or brand positioning and messaging for marketing or, or factories and factory relationships or product design, can they translate that down to a player who may literally be just starting out at the game? And, and, and a lot of times it's just teach them the fundamentals. Um, and work with them over time to accelerate their growth. And, and, you know, instead of them taking 10 years to get to a level of competency, we think we can help someone go from, you know, from little league to the pros in a, you know, in a little faster time frame. So that's, that's one consideration, a way to think about it. And then the second is the energy. Um, I personally have a background with small companies. I grew up in a campground worked, you know, I, I know what it's like to, to, to put your, your mind, body, and spirit on the soul on the line every day. Um, because if you don't do it, no one else will. So I, I kind of have that DNA. And I, I do think a lot of our members share that from their backgrounds, whether it's they grew up through corporate and they just had that owner mindset, or uh, about a third of our members are actually founders of small companies who've sometimes grown them to quite large companies. So I, I, I look for the DNA, and again, in our membership of people who, who have an owner mindset. So I mentioned coach mindset. The other one here is this owner mindset because you are the really oftentimes the only person who cares about what happens. Um, and there's lots of ways you can find those people. They exist, I believe, in small companies, medium-sized, large. Um, so it's really the mindset around that. And if you own it, you typically have a lot of energy for it. <laughs> you, you care a disproportionate amount about it if you have that mindset. So I, I think that's, um, Mike, that's probably how I, I view that that question. Kate, um, I want to talk a little bit about digital for a moment. So, you know, if you're a consumer brand today and you want to just go on Amazon and do Facebook marketing, it's arguably, um, you know, the customer online acquisition costs have just gone through the roof and you have a heavy digital background, obviously from Nike and Forrester and, and others. Um, how do you advise your entrepreneurs today on digital and, and how do you think about kind of customer acquisition? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, little, we were talking about little known facts earlier. Um, <laughs> little known fact, I have a nickname and I don't own the URL, but the nickname's Kate.com. <laughs> it, ha it has a funny ring, a good ring to it. And I, I, I use that actually as an example of how do you become a change agent at a large company? If anyone's listening who knows me by that name, it's largely because they worked at Nike and I was at Nike and I'd been there seven or eight, maybe eight years. And I, I really was itching to do some digital work. And I, I essentially repositioned myself as a digital person within the sales organization. And I made that name up and it kind of stuck. 
but it also helped a lot of people get their head around the fact that this was important. <laughs> and so um, I, I think there's a bit of positioning, you know, you, you've got to be on the offense. You've got to be, you, you, anyone at this point in time who's not leading with digital, um, just as a headline, as a concept, if you're, if you're trying to build a consumer business, and I would argue many other businesses, but my expertise is in consumer mostly, um, if you're not leading with digital and thinking first about how do you, you know, lead with the phone or own the phone and, and integrate that into an experience, if you're not thinking about integrating digital in your entire experience, you're, you're probably out of business soon, if not already. Um, so I, th I think there's that sort of mindset. And then I also um, still find it interesting that uh, people still use the phrase, and now I'm on my soapbox, sorry, people use the phrase digital as an adjective. And I actually think that's wrong. It's, it's pretty much the only word you need. So I, I use that to say that oftentimes I get asked, hey, I, I, I need a digital strategy. And I'm like, uh, no, you actually, I believe you need a strategy for a digital world. So technically digital is modifying world, but essentially it's, 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 it's so in integral to strategy these days um, that I just like to say, what's your strategy for a digital world? And, and sometimes just flipping that, that script puts, especially puts leaders, especially CEOs, C-level people in a, in a different frame of mind. And they kind of go, oh, I get it. It's not just something that lives over there with the digital team. It's not customer acquisition just through digital channels. It's like, just take the word digital out of the equation and say, hey, we have to do customer acquisition. Of course, we're going to leverage digital to do customer acquisition. So uh, and, and I'd say importantly and strategically, that's, that's, those are two of my rants. And then, um, yes, I think, John, you asked a key question that the, the market's so dynamic that, that the different platforms are very competitive. Things ebb and flow, you know, just in the past month or two, I've watched some data sources that have been super interesting, just showing you know, what was getting very, very expensive around all the platforms, all, the price went, you know, almost to zero, not quite, but, but as advertisers pulled back with essentially with the crisis and the collapse, um, it was not a time to go out and acquire customers and market, but I, I've seen in the last few weeks some things coming back and things are getting back to a little more competitive. Um, people, people are starting to have more, maybe call them new, new behaviors or new normal behaviors, but starting to normalize in some areas. People are starting to work their advertising dials a little bit now and invest a little bit now in some categories. So, um, but yeah, that's, that's a little bit of a rant on digital. I, I just believe it's essential um, and it has to be top of mind. It has to be for consumer oriented businesses. And so again, back to Oregon Sports Angels, um, even if a sneaker company pitches to us, we want to ask them what's their plan to survive in a, a world that's gone digital, you know, um, it's, it's not the same plan. And so there are some telling, you know, Q and A's that we have. One is if someone starts right in on talking about shelf space at Foot Locker, we might say, yeah, that's super interesting, but that might be a little last century. Let's talk about footlocker.com and how you're going to, you know, present your brand and tell your story there. And what's your content strategy? And, you know, how do you do distributed inventory because they're doing ship from stores and pick up at stores like blah, 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 blah. So, um, we have some questions in our due diligence and screening process that really help us understand if, if the, um, in that case, if a small company is really thinking digital first. Just, just a comment. Uh, your, your rant just became a soundbite. <laughs> and I think for many it could be a North star. So just a comment. Great. Well, go with it. Anyone, anyone wants to talk further, you guys know where to find me. 
Yeah. Kate, actually, there's a lot of great sound bites that we're developing in this conversation. <laughs> um, I actually have a question. So, you know, obviously myself, I come from a digital background and I love the energy and passion you have for that space. Mm -hmm. um, let's say I'm a startup. I'm interested in your fund or I'm interested in the Oregon Sports Angels. How can I get in touch and what does that process look like? Good question. And I can answer it with 100% confidence because I, I made it up and I run it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> perfect. And, and luckily, I have a team of people who are backstopping and, and also part of the team now. But essentially, if someone's interested, they go to our website, which I mentioned earlier, and you can drop a link in. Um, people can join us as members and inquire what membership is about, or they can, founders can pitch us. And, and so we have a pretty simple process. People just drop a, an inquiry and or a pitch deck through our website. Um, some founders also who know the platform Gust can also find us on the Gust platform as an investing network. And those are our kind of our two front doors for founders. And I can assure your listeners that we look at every single pitch that comes in because literally this is, this is how scrappy we are and, and we're new and I don't know that this will always be the case as we grow. Um, We've, and I think I mentioned this to John, when I started it, really, we came online and kind of in 18 and I, I would get literally to my email, I would get one pitch every month ish. And, and then we would know people in the community. And so we'd get kind of a couple pitches a month enough to line up a quarterly event. And then we had some good, um, you know, some small but mighty press and podcasts and things in 18. And we sort of moved into one pitch a week. And in 19, we started moving to one pitch a day coming in with really no pro promotion of who we are. I mean, we, we're still in formation mode, but we moved to like one a day. And now, um, other than a lull during March and a little bit in April, we're back to one a day-ish. And I predict we're moving into a zone of, you know, 10 to 15 a week, probably in the next year as the word gets out about who we are and our, our, we are, as I said earlier, I think we're the only ones like us and people hear about us and they absolutely want us to look at their pitches. So we look at them all, we respond with an initial, hey, you know, thanks for your interest, we'll get back to you. And we have a few screeners who look at them, you know, so I'm more of a traffic cop now then, and, and I'll look at some and actually open quite a bit of the decks and, and sort of just see what's going on out there. But there are occasions I might not be able to for a variety of reasons. And we have a screening committee. Um, and then if the screening committee sees something, we'll often set up a, a phone call or, or video conference for an initial conversation with the founder to understand what they're trying to accomplish. And if that goes well, we'll move into more, uh, probably a more common screening process, getting some of our relevant subject matter people. Um, and then we start to get more serious about, is this a fit for us and vice versa? Um, and we screen for, as I mentioned, quarterly meetings. We've seen, we typically see three or four companies per quarter as far as pitching. Um, and, and I could go on about, you know, what we're looking for in terms of their stage and the investability, et cetera. But that's, that's, that's how we, you get to us now. And we're out and about at events. Well, when we're, we'll be able to get back to events um, in real life, we, we participate in pitch fests as judges, as advisors and mentors, that kind of thing. We have a pretty active network primarily around Oregon. Um, we have seen some deals from outside in you know, the Pacific Northwest in California. So we, we definitely look at deals along the I-5 corridor because we wanna generally be close to our 
um, to our companies. Um, we have seen and will continue to look at companies that are really, really compelling from outside the I-5 area. So right now we're talking to somebody with a very interesting thing out of Boston. Um, and so I, I think we're focused on geographic proximity where possible, but if somebody is so spectacular that we think they're the next big thing, we'll for sure talk to them. That's awesome. It's great to hear a lot of these things are normalizing as you, as you mentioned, Kate. And, you know, one of the things uh, we'd love to hear and maybe get you out of here on is, you know, the future of the industry, especially as that relates to quote unquote software eating the world. Everybody has, you know, seen that before. So, so thoughts on the industry and, and how are, how are you guys preparing for that? Uh, on the sports industry, you mean, or the inv investing? Because we're in a few. You mean sports in general? <laughs> uh, sports, yes, please. Yeah. Sports industry. Yeah, good question. Um, well, as I said earlier, it's not like sports and tech are separate anymore. To your point, so many things are. It's like, how is technology in empowering the sports world, right? So um, I didn't describe our Venn diagram earlier, but the math geek friends listening in will surely know and love the Venn diagram. I like it a lot. One of my good friends. And we, we basically have kind of products in one circle and, and technology and services and we'll call it digital, whatever, in the other. And so we're, we're trying to really expand that the area of intersection and, and companies are doing that, you know. And so think of us as sports and sports tech. And um, a lot of the investment opportunities are they're quite different. You know, a, a product has a known horizon and investment thesis, a, a soft good or a hard good. Um, an app or a service has a known horizon as far as software and technology. What we're seeing are some of these interesting blended experiences. I, I think I think I know you're you're a guy who talks about omni fitness, <laughs> but but sort of that that omni zone, whatever you want to call it. But the intersection is where a lot of the magic I think has already happened and will happen. So I'm and and to the question of the day, you know, the trends around connected experiences, whether they're retail experiences that we talked about earlier, whether they're athlete experiences, which right now we're all probably doing some versions of things that we weren't doing before. I'm a good example. I was not an active Nike training club member. And now because my gym is closed, that's pretty much what I'm doing. Um, and I have friends who are, you know, not avid Peloton people or would, you know, would poo-poo participation in some virtual class. They're now developing new behaviors because, you know, this is going on, has been going on a while, is going to continue for a while, and the behaviors are getting reset. And so um, that's an example around connected fitness. There'll be a ton of others. We had a, a member call yesterday morning. It was very fascinating because we had posed a question to our members, hey, what trend do you think is interesting coming out of this, you know, as this crisis unfolds and, and we start to recover and re renew and refresh and, and redo? Um, a big discussion about the future of, of sporting events and, and fans and how's that connected fan experience going to change right now we're like there's a drought um, we'll start to see things on screens well before we see things in real life um, and so there's probably for the next few years some very interested technologies that'll bridge that fan experience um, so those are two examples that that i'm pretty keyed up about i see a lot of innovation coming there had already been a lot going on. Um, our group is a little more, I would say, leaning more towards that than we were six months ago. And, and that's exciting to me because that, that marriage of sports and technology is where I think a lot of great companies are going to be born. And as an investor, I think that's a very interesting place to play. Well said. And uh, it only took 11 months since I made up that Omni Fitness word for somebody <laughs> 
to find it and use it. So I appreciate that. that that's awesome. Uh, you're actually listening or reading my presentations on, on my WordPress website. So <laughs> you do your homework in this world, people do your homework. <laughs> no, that, that's great, Kate. And um, it, it's so much to unpack. We'd love to bring you back on onto the show to keep telling, telling the story and hearing about the companies and, uh, and how others from, from our listenership might get involved and, and reach out. So Kate from Oregon Sports Angels, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. It was great to chat with you guys. And as I said, we, we are here for the founders and, you know, nothing would please our group more than to find and fund some next generation founders. So um, I'd say as my, as my parting message, thanks to you guys. And thanks to your listeners, check out our website, um, drop us a note. You'll, you, you'll know who's behind the curtain now. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Kate. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks. Take care. Thank you, you can subscribe to this podcast on all major podcast platforms. Until next time, play hard or at least look good doing it. <laughs>